And so tonight we'll begin in Acts 2, starting in verse 22. Here we go. This is Peter continuing in his sermon. And at this point, it is exposition of what Joel wrote in Joel chapter 2. He had just talked about how the Spirit will come in fulfillment of what it is that the prophets have prophesied. And now he will begin to lean quite a bit on Psalm 16 as he continues to preach. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. That's a, a rather radical thing that Peter is saying here, especially when we know that these people, earlier from verses 9 and 10, were Parthians, Mede, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, Cretans, Arabs. Uh, they were pretty far away, perhaps. Unless they also came for Passover, then yeah, they would have been a, a similar crowd as well. But nonetheless, we know that the hammer was not in their hands. The hammer was in the hands of the Romans. But nonetheless, even though the Romans had the hammer in their hand, it was they, Peter says, and we who nailed him to the cross. Sure, wicked men put their hand to the hammer, but we did exactly that. Well, we decided to indulge ourselves. And God knew this from, but this is so mind blowing, right? God knew that we would do this from before the creation of the earth. And that he already had in mind the very real eventuality that we would decide to commit cosmic treason, thumb our nose at a God who loves us, act as though he didn't exist, and decide to indulge our flesh, despite knowing with great clarity the holy will of God for our lives. And so off we go to completely reject him and do what it is that our flesh desires. And to put us on a collision course with destruction. And despite all of that, God still disrupts the fall of all men. And, and this is the description of the great disruption that God has always brought to us. And so on he goes. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. Again, this is a psalm attributed to David by Luke, by Peter, by the Holy Spirit. And, and here David is saying, I saw the Lord as always before me, at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And so here David acts as a prophet. In addition to all the other things that he is, a writer of Psalms, a great king, but now also a prophet 
to be able to prophesy that this Holy One of God would not be left to the realm of the dead, nor would his flesh see decay. And so now again, Peter begins to do exposition on the scripture that he just read. And so he now begins the same way as he did with the last exposition by saying, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised in our oath that he would place one of his own descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured out what you now see and hear. For David didn't ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Psalm 110, we've already looked at this back in Luke, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So not only is this Jesus Messiah, but now as we see the way that David refers to him, he's also Lord. Where, where do we get Messiah? Well, earlier when he says, you will not let your Holy One see decay, that was a code language for Messiah, not very different from the word for Messiah. And then later in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Peter has now basically let everyone know that why did Jesus raise from the dead and why did he ascend? There's a big purpose so that he would now pour out the Holy Spirit so that now in the new covenant, we would all have experience and access to the very spirit of God. The great difference between the old and the new covenants is this work of the Holy Spirit. It makes all the difference. And also, it's rather interesting that he makes it a big deal that Jesus was resurrected. That is not the word that you would use for someone who simply in spirit ascends into heaven. It is what you would use for someone who is, who is bodily raised to life again and has bodily ascended into heaven itself. And we are witnesses, he's able to say, before these very crowds. And, and, and does so with great confidence to be able to make it super clear that all this new evidence that you see, and they're seeing amazing evidence, right? They're seeing wonders of the Holy Spirit working through these disciples of Jesus. Plus, they're, they're hearing all of this through all of the different disciples in their own native Hungarian or Bulgarian. Apparently, there's a difference. <laughs> I'm sure it's a massive difference, probably. In, in my ignorance. Uh, but everybody who's hearing this is being enveloped by miracles courtesy of the Holy Spirit at this very moment. This must be a very convincing moment. And what he's trying to convince them of, of this point is two things. That Jesus really is the Lord who has ascended and this is really why the Holy Spirit has now come to make this the ultimate Pentecost. The Pentecost of all Pentecosts. The Pentecost that all Pentecosts before this have always pointed towards. The time of great harvest. Pentecost was also known as the Feast of Harvest. The, the time of great gathering. 
Again, before, where all people were scattered by their separate languages, now they're being gathered back together by separate languages as they all hear that gospel being preached in all the languages under heaven. Seventy languages was what they were scattered to. Seventy languages is, is, is what, according to tradition, they heard as they came back to hear the law. Seventy languages is what they heard as they come back now to be able to be gathered under the new covenant. And now the Torah, the day of the giving of the Torah, is now superseded by the day of the giving of the Spirit. And the day, according to Exodus 19, that was always known as the birthday of Israel is now the birthday of the church. And all this beautiful synergy and, and kind of uh, parallelism between the old and the new comes together at this very moment. And then he concludes with a charge. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. So he's like, all right, if you're going to get one thing out of all that I just explained... From Joel 2, from Psalm 16, from Psalm 10, from all of my exposition, let me boil it down to a soundbite for you. Even soundbites won't come for, for 2,000 more years. But here's the soundbite. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What a soundbite. If you appreciate that, yes... We crucified Christ. We didn't hold the, the, the hammer in our hands. But we crucified Christ. And to bring it on home with God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. It's an emphatic you in the way that Peter uses it here. And this is the one that you've been waiting for. You know how you've been talking and wondering and messianic, messianic fever has gripped you. And, and caused you excitement to run around the corner and wonder could he be it? Could he be it? Well guess what? All that wondering of who it could be. Here it is. It's Jesus. The one you shouted to be crucified. The one that you required to be crucified through the indulgence of flesh. He's the one. Oh my goodness. If you really are getting this, and I believe they did, then this has got to just cut right through you. And the Holy Spirit is actually falled upon, has fell upon uh, Peter at this point. So imagine the power of these words. And the Spirit is working to convict the crowd. Because Jesus himself promises that I will send the Holy Spirit at this moment. And he will convict the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment itself. All that has come together by the power of the Holy Spirit. All at this pinch point at one of the greatest moments of time in all history. This is a turning point in the history of man. This is not just reversing the curse, but this is reversing the, the dispersion. This is God's plan to not only let us be redeemed, but to let us be unified again as one people under Jesus Christ with access to the very Spirit of God. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What humility. At that very moment. Cut to the heart. Sounds like godly sorrow. <clears throat> you know, when Paul writes about the phenomenon of godly sorrow, he said that godly sorrow leads to repentance. And repentance brings salvation. Keep that in mind. Godly sorrow, repentance, salvation. 
So with that in mind, we now have godly sorrow. Look at what Peter goes to next. Peter replied to those with godly sorrow, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Godly sorrow, repentance, salvation. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, wish we had all those words. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then we see what their life looked like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone filled with awe at the wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers, they were together. They had everything in common, sold their property, possessions, gave to anyone who had need. Every day continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And then there's a interestingly and reminiscent phrase here that sounds very much like verse 41 when he says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now look at the continuation of this. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And I'll get to that in a minute. And what I want to zero in on now, in addition to the brilliance of God's plan, the fulfillment of Pentecost, which we talked a lot more about on Sunday, is to now just zero in on something that just seems to be so oddly controversial. And, and what really, I, I think, brought this to heart is that on uh, Sunday evening, uh, Debbie and, and Lindsay, they went to um, a church production of a, of a play. And it was a rather large uh, group that had gathered together. And in the middle of the production, without using any scripture whatsoever, a preacher came up and spent about 20 minutes making an emotional appeal to all of the people in the auditorium. And it concluded with saying to them, here's how salvation is going to occur. Shut your eyes and hold up your hand if you want Jesus to come into your heart. He will heal you. He'll take you as you are. Don't worry about it. Just accept him and receive him. And um, Debbie said she opened her eyes and looked around. Uh, but that, that there were so many throughout the group that all sadly were desiring reconciliation to God. But all they received was a man's corruption of what the clarity that God wants to be able to give. And, and sadly, as they, as they raised their hands, they then received assurance, not from any scriptures, because that entire process, none of it appears in scripture. Uh, they, they received assurance from the, the, the preacher who was guiding them that, that now you've received the forgiveness of your sins. Now you've been healed. Now you've been reconciled. Uh, congratulations, you know, on your on your new life and your new path in Christ. And I'm, uh, I wasn't there, so I'm, I'm kind of uh, paraphrasing from what Deb told me in all of that. But that was that was basically the gist of it. And then there was that was it. Uh, go go off on your way. We we hope that things work out uh, for you uh, along the way as well. But yet, and and, uh, and I've mentioned this before. People that I've 
spent a lot of time with who went about that process of, of experiencing salvation through an altar call or through simply praying Jesus into their heart. When, when I asked them, how many times did you do that? The number is almost never. Maybe I, I probably say never in, in all the people I've talked to once. It's always multiple, multiple times. Why? Because there was no help in bringing anyone to repentance in any of that. Matter of fact, repentance was almost eschewed by just saying, well, you know, it's all right. Come as you are. Sinful woman. You know, I mean, the, the woman caught in adultery. You know, Jesus was just you know, happy to just quickly say, say to her, your sins are forgiven. Neither do I condemn you. Uh, so don't, don't worry about it. Uh, even though Jesus did actually have some clear instruction of sin no more in the, in the process there. But, but, but there, there is rarely, and I would probably say maybe never, a real help through Scripture to help someone first be able to come to repentance before receiving what is purported to be salvation. But yet, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.19, no one can call on the name of the Lord. No one can say Jesus is Lord. Or no one can name the name of the Lord, uh, depending on your translation. But no one can call on the name of the Lord unless they have turned from their wickedness. So why, why even promote the idea of, yes, Jesus, you are now my Lord. Come into my heart. Thank you for, for saving me. Well, it's, and then it's no wonder that after that event, maybe a day or two or that later that day, perhaps things go back to where they were. The girlfriend that was a temptation, uh, maybe you're, you're strong for about 15 minutes and then back it goes. The shows that you watch, the internet porn that you visited, you know, instead of being a born-again Christian, you're just a porn-again Christian. And, and there's, there's no real recognizable change and beautiful evidence attesting work of the Holy Spirit through repentance in your life. So it's no wonder if that's the way you go about it that you think, maybe I better go to the altar again. Maybe again, maybe again, maybe this time with gusto, this time with tears, this time with loud cries and tears. Let's see how it goes. Well, keep doing that. And of course, we all know the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for different results. God gives us a different process that gives us different results. And he gives us clarity. And of course, that process is summarized by Peter while they're saying, what should we do? What should we do about this fact that our sins have, have, have crucified Jesus? What should we do? And he gives the beautiful double cure that we looked at at the very end of Luke. And here it is again, the double cure. Repent. In other words, you're going to be set free from the dominion and oppression of sin. The chains of sin will no longer shackle you. Repentance frees you from all of that. Hallelujah. And you're going to be free from the penalty of sin through the forgiveness of sins. So you have, you, you have repentance from sins and forgiveness from sins. The very double cure that, that um, Luke talked about as Jesus gave us in Luke 24. Now Peter reminds us of again here. Here's how it's going to happen. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, it's not just for you. It's for those who are far off, those who live really far away. Those will come many, many years later. This is the one way. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. 
And even though it's super clear, for whatever reason, Christendom, and I could go through the historical reason, but I don't have time, uh, but I can do this. I can at least look at what the Bible says baptism is for. Because I, I go to so many different websites to read what they say baptism is for, and I always get something like this. It's an outward expression to the church of a commitment that you've made to Christ. Well, guess what? You can't find a single scripture that mentions any part of that. And the Bible never says that that's what it's for. Or they say that it's simply an outward sign of an inward grace. Again, it's never mentioned in those terms, in that way, in any of scripture. Is there something symbolic about baptism? Sure, we're being buried with Christ and risen with him. But it doesn't make it merely a symbol if it actually has a purpose. The, the word that theologians would use is, does it have efficacy? Is there efficacy to baptism or is it merely just a symbolic act that you do to feel better or remind yourself about something grander? Or does it in fact have efficacy? Is something happening? Well, what is baptism for? In this passage, it's for the forgiveness of your sins. I don't know how much clearer the Bible can be for that. Matter of fact, other times that we have the same construction of for the forgiveness of your sins, the preposition for is the Greek word ice, E-I-S, epsilon, iota, sigma. Uh, the, ice means it's a purpose clause. It means there is a purposefulness about what I'm saying here. The other time that Jesus uses that phrase, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant that is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, because what I don't even know, I don't even know why it is that people have to grapple with this, but because people don't want baptism to be for the forgiveness of sins, they got to do something to this verse. And again, I wish I knew why they don't want it to mean that it. It's such a simple, straightforward verse. But if they don't want it to mean for the purpose of you getting the forgiveness of your sins, then they have to say, well, it's, um, it means that because you've already had your sins forgiven, go ahead and repent and be baptized. In other words, um, I, let's say that I, um, I, I, I appreciate uh, Harrison for he drives my son to school. I know it's a little odd, odd construction, but, it, but, but it's actually a real way of saying it. In that case, for, in English, is being used as because he drives my son to school. Um, I love you for your service, right? So because he gives service, I, I, I do love him. Uh, now, that works sort of, kind of, in an awkward way with for, but it doesn't with ice, the Greek word there. And as a matter of fact, many, many have tried to argue throughout time. And I'm going to read you some of the most interesting exchange if you're a ridiculous nerd. Um, and hold on, I got I to gotta go back. And, and this is an exchange concerning the Journal of Biblical Literature. And it's an exchange concerning a, uh, a, a discussion that occurred in 1923. And at that time, there was a fellow by the name of J.R. Manti who championed the idea that in Acts 2.38, for means because of. And he tried with all his heart to bring that about. And I'm going to give you the, the truncated version because I'm in an incredibly charitable mood tonight. Uh, 
and after I'm done, you're going to say, that's the truncated version? Uh, <laughs> writing in, in JBL, Journal of Biblical Literature, 1951, J.R. Manti cited Matthew 3.11 along with Mark 1.4, Luke 3.3, and several other passages as examples of causal ice. Causal ice means that it's, it's not the purpose, but it's the cause, if you mean. So, be, so because you've already had the forgiveness of sins, you should go ahead and repent and be baptized. So he's arguing causal ice means that you hold to that rather unique interpretation. Uh, Manti, whose denominational creed required this belief in forgiveness of sins prior to baptism, hoped to explain Acts 2.38 in a manner consistent with his theology. Manti conceded that none of the Greek lexicons translate ice in a causal fashion. And the only Greek grammar that does, that he could cite, was a manual grammar of the Greek New Testament, which he himself wrote. <laughs> it goes on. A definitive New Testament scholar of biblical languages at the time was named uh, Ralph Marcus. And, and it says, Ralph Marcus responded... Uh, in a subsequent issue of the Journal of Biblical Literature, showing the error of the conclusion Manti deduced from these citations. Manti tried again. Marcus wrote a final rejoinder, concluding with this. If Professor Manti is right in his interpretation of uh, New Testament passages on baptism and repentance and the forgiveness of sins, he is right not because of the language. In other words, he could only be right by putting aside the clarity of the language. He's only right because he wants his theology to be right, not because of what the words on the page actually say. And it was one of the, the more kind of damning uh, retorts to, to what it is that Manti tried to put forth. But anyway, the idea that this is even considered goes back to 1923 in the initial argument in 1951 is the actual journal entry. And there's a long discussion with a lot of primary source material showing that the origin of all this is very new. I mean, 1923, 1951, that's 1900 years after Jesus, by the way, after these words are spoken. So it's a good bit of time before anyone even comes up with this novel interpretation. And those who, who actually are objective about Greek New Testament language, and by the way, Ralph Marcus was a Jew. So he had no skin in the game. He was just interested in the Greek New Testament language. And, and he, as, as the definitive scholar of his day, shot it down as hard as he could. And, and so what, what is baptism for? Well, it's for the forgiveness of your sins. There's no way around that. But then some will say, well, so are you saying that if you're not baptized, you're not saved? And if you want to be saved, you got to be baptized? Well, again, we got to be careful that you know, when people say that to me, I feel like it's almost insulting. It's, I know it's not baptism that saves me. It's the grace of God. It's the blood of Christ. But God chooses to do it in such a way with water and spirit so that it is an unmistakable experience of grace that gives me a radical confidence in the certainty of my life made new. Now, here's an interesting parallel of what we just read. In verse 41, it says, Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now look at the parallel idea here. The Lord added to their number daily. See, see the, the, the connection. Added to their number that day. Added to their number daily. Those who were being saved. Earlier, 
those who were baptized were the ones who were added to their number that day. And so the idea of being saved and being baptized are set in parallel by Luke as he describes that event. In 1 Peter, the next time that we see Peter writing about baptism, this is what he says. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It, meaning baptism, saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And amen, that's why the resurrection is such a big deal. The resurrection sends the Holy Spirit of God. The resurrection allows us to be born of water and spirit instead of just born of water, which isn't a very big deal. But being born of water and spirit is very much a big deal. Baptism saves you, according to Peter, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what about this word symbol there? Well, he's talking about the floodwaters of Noah in the previous verse. And it says these waters, this, this water symbolizes baptism. Not this water in the baptistry, this water back that covered the earth symbolizes baptism. So again, so many will say, well, see, baptism is only a symbol. No, here it says baptism saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is not the symbol in this sentence. Noah's water is the symbol of the greater reality, which, which will be the fulfillment. What is the greater, greater reality? Baptism. If I were to say this sentence to you, this ring symbolizes my marriage. What is the symbol? The ring or the marriage? You guys are excellent. The ring is correct. This ring symbolizes my marriage. Ring is the symbol. Marriage is the real deal that it points to. How about in this sentence? Noah's water symbolizes baptism. Which is the symbol? Noah's water. And what it points to is the ultimate fulfillment in baptism. This is not a verse talking of baptism as a symbol. It's talking of baptism as just the opposite. As the ultimate reality that is symbolized by stuff in the Old Testament. Moving on. How about this? After Saul has repented, called Jesus Lord, obeyed Him, has been told that He's God's chosen instrument, has fasted and prayed for three days for forgiveness, and now is, is being told that you will be my witnesses of all that you've seen and heard to all of the Gentiles, even after all of that has occurred, he is still with his sins. And if fasting and praying and repenting and calling Jesus Lord could take away your sins, then this verse wouldn't be the conclusion of the narrative in Acts 22.16. But this is the conclusion of the narrative in Acts 22.16. And now, what are you waiting for? In other words, Saul, look at all that God's done for you. Has he not made it clear enough at this point? What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When will his sins be washed away? Well, when he gets up and he's baptized. At his baptism, he calls on the name of the Lord. By the way, he shouldn't be baptized if he's not repented, because you can't call on the name of the Lord if you've not repented. And we know that because 2 Timothy 2.19 again says, no one can call on the name of the Lord unless he has turned from his wickedness. No one should be thinking about baptism unless they've repented. Once they've repented, amen. And that repentance is not a work. That repentance is wrought by the convicting, intervening work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and show us the error of our ways. Praise God that He's done that. We didn't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But when we respond to that rather than Heisman reject that 
and realize, I get it, God. Thank you for opening my eyes. Now, let me get the rest of what it is you want to bring my way. That's where Paul is at at this moment. So get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away. It's probably some of us sitting here right now where this is probably a pretty good question. What are you waiting for? If the Holy Spirit has brought about this kind of work and amazing and eye-opening insight for you to be able to see and understand and appreciate the covenant and know what it is that you want and is all made clear by the Spirit of God, well, then what are you waiting for? My goodness, what it is that, that, that's coming our way. John 3, 5. Some people say, well, yeah, but there's no passage that says if you're not baptized, you're not going to heaven. Well, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. And people, well, how do you know that's talking about baptism? And nobody who doesn't have a clear theology of baptism likes this to mean baptism, born of water and spirit. But here's what's interesting about this passage. Some will say, well, born of water and spirit means first you're born as a baby and later on you're reborn spiritually. Impossible. It's impossible by the Greek construction of this sentence. The, the final construction of born of water and spirit is geneste kai, pneumat, uh, kai hudatus et pneumatus. So born geneste of ek uh, uh, hudatus and kai pneumatus. That phrase, one preposition, ek, born of, governs two nouns. Neither noun has a the or an uh before it in the Greek language. Whenever that occurs, 100% of the time, in all Greek language available to us right now, it is one event. And it, and it has never been anything but one event. So whatever is in view here is not two events. It is one event. As a matter of fact, every... Um, a biblical linguist, evangelical, Catholic, Orthodox, whatever they are, if they've written a, a, a definitive volume on prepositions of the New Testament Greek language, they all uh, cite this rule. That a preposition governing two nouns, and there's no article the, uh, in front of them, the, 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 the most famous is by a guy named Murray J. Harris, who writes the addendum to the... Uh, Evangelical, uh, the exegetical dictionary of the New Testament. And in the back of that, this definitive article on, on prepositions is there. And by the way, he's evangelical. He don't even believe that, that this, this, you know, is the case that if you're not baptized, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. But yet he affirms that this passage has to talk about baptism because it is to be born of water and spirit. Uh, and by, by the way, if that is not the case, and by every Greek speaking uh, leading writer of the church for the first two centuries all pointed to John 3, 5 as the number one passage they cited when they were giving teaching on baptism. The number one verse in the first 200 years of the church when the church spoke Greek was John 3, 5. But if that's the case, think of the, the uh, magnitude of this. And, and Tertullian writes it exactly like this. Tertullian writes that un unless one is baptized he cannot see the kingdom of God. As soon as I, as soon as we say this, immediately doubts arise among those who are unscrupulous. This is, I'm quoting Tertullian in 198 A.D. Even then, people didn't like the idea that there were some sort of, you know, requisites that God put forth for entering the kingdom of heaven. And and here's the, the here's where I think it comes from. People don't like the idea that maybe we have to do something that might look like a work. 
in order to have redemption. But does the Bible ever call baptism a work? It, it does not. As a matter of fact, even in this passage, it is set in parallel to John 3.3. 3. And John 3.3 3 says almost exactly the same words. Jesus answered, Very truly I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born from above or born again. To be born from above is not a work that you can do. And the parallel of being born from above is to be born of water and spirit. So being born of water and spirit is not a work that you do in and of yourself. It is a divine activity that God brings your way. Let's look at another. Titus 3.5 of whether it's a work or not. He saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. In other words, we are not saved by righteous stuff we do. Or, or more, even specifically, we are not saved by righteous works. ESV talks about the beginning there, we're not saved by any righteous work that we can do. So that's clear, right? But guess what? We are saved by His mercy. In other words, we're saved by grace. But how? Do we stand on our head? Do we do an altar call? Do we just feel good? Does it hit us like a bolt out of the blue? Here's how. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. That phrase, washing of rebirth, in the Greek, washing is the word lutron. Lutron means a big bathtub. Logos Software did a little experiment with their software to, to look at whether words were used figurative or literally. And there are certain words in the in, in English language, too, that lend themselves to figurative usage, and others don't lend themselves to it quite as much. Lutron, for whatever reason, was never used in the Greek language, at least of the documents that Logos had available to them, never used once in a figurative manner. So whenever it was used, it always meant the big wash tub. So if we wanted to just kind of paraphrase, yeah, we're not saved by any righteous works we've done. We're saved by His grace. But how? He saved us through that big wash tub of rebirth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So what is baptism for? Yeah, it's for rebirth. But is it a work that we do? No, because we're not saved by any works that we do. But God chooses to do it in this way to make it so clear and obvious. It actually adds to the grace that he makes it experiential and clear and certain. And, and I love the fact that I may have a lot of bad days, but I will never doubt that on March 17th of 1993, I was reborn in the washtub of rebirth and, and, and given the Holy Spirit. Amen. And then finally, before we... Uh, Finish out here. In him, this is Colossians 2, longer passage. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. So whatever it is that's in view here is something that is not performed by human hands. That's a long phrase with a lot of English words. In the Greek, it's one word. Akieropoitis. Akieropoitis is the most definitive word in the Greek language that means not a work that man can do. Ah means not, chero means hand, poitus means work. It is not a work by the hands of men. It is the most technical term to mean not a work. What is it that is not a work done by the hands of men? Having been baptized, having been buried with him in baptism, and raised with him through your faith in the power of God. Let me read this through. 
You were also, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision, akiaropoitus. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And now see the parallel again. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He took it away and he nailed it to the cross. Look at everything that occurs here. It is a time when you're made alive. It is a time when all your sins are forgiven. It is a time when the charge of all your debt that you've accrued through sin is completely taken away. It is a time when your condemnation is removed. It is a time when you're raised through your faith to new life with Christ. When does all this happen? When you're buried with him in baptism. That's a lot. That's amazing. And by the way, some will argue, I've had this conversation a lot lately, um, that no, 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 I was saved. And having come to salvation, I then realized that the next Sunday that our church would have a baptism service, I probably should come forward because it's, it's the first Sunday of every month. And so I went to my church and on that first Sunday of the month, I decided to participate in the baptism service because I was dead in sin, but I was made alive when I was saved. Look at the, the um, kind of the, the semi-ridiculousness of that statement. Why would God work out a covenant where first he takes you from dead in sin to alive in Christ, and then after you've made alive in Christ, now it's time to be buried? Right? We're buried when we're dead in sin. As this verse says. And then we are made alive by our faith as we are raised from that, that water burial to new life in Christ. And uh, I, I praise God that, that, that this gift has been given to me. Uh, you know, if, if you received a gift and it's so clearly a gift, right? And uh, let, let's say that um, I wanted to, um, uh, to give to Bryce an, an iPhone, right? An iPhone 6S. Really? Oh, I'm sorry. It's just an iPhone six. Uh, not bad though, right? And 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 I and I hand him I hand him my iPhone. Hey, Bryce, here. Why, why don't you have this? Now, if it goes down like that, I don't know. Bryce might be like, "Oh, wow, that was nice. He took the initiative. He did that for me." But he might always be wondering, "Does he want that back? Is this really mine?" But what if instead, I I, I pulled out from behind here a nice gift wrap package. Really wrapped up nice, says Bryce on it. It's got a bow. I hand it to him. And he's like, what's this for? What's this for? You know what? I just love you. I just wanted to give you this gift. And, and he gets this gift. And, and the gift is a, an iPhone 6. And it's in an iPhone 6 box, but it's all wrapped up. Now, just because he has to unwrap that present to receive it, does unwrapping the present make it a work by which he earns that present? No, imagine, imagine if in unwrapping that gift, he says to me, I don't need to say thank you. I just earned this by unwrapping it. <laughs> but he wouldn't, nor would any of us. But that's the ridiculousness of saying, baptism can't have anything to do with salvation because salvation is a work by which you think you earn your salvation. Wrong. It's just unwrapping the gift. 
It's making the gift all the more clear. It's making your salvation all the more certain. It takes away from you that nagging doubt when you came forward in an unbiblical activity like an altar call that you can't find in the Bible where you're always doubting. But instead, to have an activity that you can look at again and again and again through the book of Acts and through almost every single New Testament book to, to be able to see it again and again and again. And say, Amen. That's what happened to me. I unwrapped the gift just in the way that God wanted me to be able to unwrap it because part of the gift is the certainty of what it is that God wants to give you. So we have less time in groups right now, but you know what? As you have a moment, take a moment and ask, why does God want you to be certain of your salvation?